and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 30 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Garisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram and Twitter and FantasyLawGuy.com. Special guests on today's show, and tonight it's the Battle of Ohio. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. We let him off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep attriculating the ball down the field, boy. I saw it, son. I saw it. Hello? You play to win the game. today's episode, I'm bringing on a special guest, Wade Longmire, and then I'll be previewing tonight's game between the Cincinnati Bengals and Cleveland Browns. And we're also bringing back the fantasy nugget of the show. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a great show today. Okay, I'm going to bring in Wade Longmire, our guest on today's show. Wade and I met when we worked for the Houston Texans back in the day, back in 2012. And it was a summer internship. And it was the opportunity of a lifetime. Five of us were selected for this internship out of like thousands of applicants. And we all came from different areas of the United States. And it was only a summer internship. But by the end of it, we knew everything about each other, like spent so many hours spent grinding. Like a lot of people think, working for an NFL team, like so cool, so easy, you know, what a cush job that is. But the hours were just unbelievable. I mean, like we would be getting to the facility at like 4.30 a.m. and to set up for training camp. And we wouldn't leave until like six or seven that evening. And we worked Saturdays, Sundays, very little pay. And it was pretty insane looking back on it. But it was such a unique experience. I wouldn't trade for anything. Wade, what are some of your favorite memories working for the Houston Texans. And thanks for coming on today's show, by the way. Hey, thanks for having me. I think, Nick, when you look at that team, right, the Texans had just gone to the playoffs. They got against the Bengals and J.J. Watt, young J.J. Watt, rookie, second year in the league. He had a pick six, right, in that playoff game to win their first ever home game, the first one they've had in a while. And I think Kubiak and staff took a step back and they looked at the team and they said, okay, we got – a young J.J. Watt, a future star. Andre Johnson's one of the best underrated receivers in the league. Arian Foster's bound to lead the league in rushing here sometime soon. I'm not sure about this Matt Schaub guy, uh, but he's on the team right now. He said, what else do we need? And it was a Nick Garisco and a Wade Longmire on the marketing team because they wanted to run a premier NFL training camp. So that's, that's how I look at that experience. I'm glad we were able to bring that action to Houston. Um, but favorite memory, man, it has to be 4 a.m., setting up those blow up bouncy houses for all the Houston Texans kids of the world that they would come run through. And and for your listeners, it was literally our job was to get there at 4 a.m., set up bouncy house fun land, and then run the bouncy house for the eight hours in the Houston heat that people were out there and and then break it all down again and do it the next day. Uh, And my favorite memory was watching Nick just run the field goal booth the entire training camp and coaching up these kids, a thousand kids on their technique and trying to get them to hit down on the ball so that it would go right through the uprights. I think, and we were talking about this earlier, but I think Goskowski even came through at one point 
and Nick gave him some pointers. Didn't help in last night's or, uh, Monday Night Football game with the Titans and the Broncos. So he's got to get some more training from you. But watching you run that, that stands out to me tenfold in the Houston Heat. Yeah, I remember that I, I definitely found my niche there. They had set, they had, had us rotating on different assignments. Like sometimes we'd have to like follow the cheerleaders and make sure that they didn't grab or get grabbed or like followed by perverts. And sometimes we had to get players water and sometimes we had to work autograph booths. And I just really liked interacting with all the kids. They end up, they ended up liking my enthusiasm so much there that they just kept me on the field goal unit, I guess the entire training camp, but we were doing, you know, people asked me like, Oh, what did you do for the Texans? And, and saying that it changed every day is like so cliche, but there's just some days we were just rolling t-shirts to fit into the cannons that they shoot in the stadiums. And other days we were just, you know, interacting with players, which was really cool. Just getting them water, whatever that they really needed. I mean, it was really all about them, of course, but we learned many tidbits about working the inner workings of an NFL team, just like what goes into the game day operations. Also, you know, what their practice schedule looks like, how they work how they eat. Remember, we got to eat with the players. We were there when Arian Foster became a vegan. I remember that was the big thing in the cafeteria. Like we went through and all of a sudden Arian had a different line in a different bar, right? Because they had to bring in another chef or they had to pivot a chef because he was going to change his entire diet. Worked out for him. I think one of us tried one of his vegan burgers one day or what have you to follow through. We didn't end up leading the league in rushing, but uh, it was funny to see that behind the scenes and, and hear the things that would become the headlines on the NFL Network. Yeah, I, I want to tell one story. I, this one time, this is my most vivid memory of camp, and I don't know if you actually know about this or maybe you don't remember because I, I, it would only happen to me, of course. And this one time, this massive nose tackle, I think he ended up getting cut. I honestly forgot his name. He was, I think he was Hawaiian, but he – you know, was signing autographs and his ankle was taped up and it was giving him a lot of pain because I guess it was just really tight. So he wanted his tape off his ankle and I'm there working the autograph booth. So of course he looks to me, he says, Hey, can you get this tape off my leg, man? You know, it's killing me. And I'm like, you know, I'm not an athletic trainer. Like I don't really have any experience doing that. So, you know, I'll go look for somebody who can help you with that. And he he just kind of gives me this death glare. And this is like a, you know, NFL nose tackle. You know, I'm like nervous at this point. And he goes, no, man, I want you to do it. (laughs) And I was like, dude, I was like, I really don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know. The guy's like 6'5", like 345 pounds. Like he's a monster. So I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. So all of a sudden he pulls out, he pulls out this tape cutting knife. And before I know it, like I'm under the table trying to get this tape off this Texan's nose tackle. And while he's signing autographs and I'm just like so terrified that I'm going to cut his leg with this knife or um, he's not going to make a team, you know, he's going to squash me like a bug. Like I'm going to be on his hit list or something. And finally I get it off after like five minutes of working on it. Cause I, I just don't know what I'm doing. And it's hard. I mean, there's like layers and layers of this tape and he goes, okay, thanks. Uh, all right. Can you get my right now? And I was like, you're right. <laughs> He raises up his like pants. He says, yeah, my right ankle's taped uh, too. So I had to do both ankles. I was just so nervous. And that, that was just, yeah, I, I just good to reminisce a little. It's, it's pretty no scary way. time for good times. That's above and beyond the call of duty for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, sometimes we were asked to do some pretty crazy things. Um, okay. 
let's get into uh, fantasy football here. Uh, and the whole point of all this is that I met Wade at when we were working for the Houston Texans, and we've been keeping touch ever since. And we talk shop every year. Very, he's a very, very competitive fantasy football manager, and that's why we're having him on today's show. Uh, Wade, how did you fare in your in week one in your league of record? What a question, Nick. And I think some of my members even listen to your league, so I'm sure they're all groaning at that question because for your listeners, I, you know, Nick describes me as a competitive player. It's generous. I love the game. I'm out there for the game. I read his draft guide every year. You know, I, I listen to other experts. Uh, but traditionally, I've fallen short, right? If you've watched the league, I'm very much a Kevin character in the sense that I am the commissioner and I pour blood, sweat, and tears into running the league and administering and making sure things are just and fair and trying to bring excitement, but I've never won the damn thing, right? I've always so gotten playoffs in playoffs every year though, right? Fair point. I'm always in the playoffs, high consistency, but I'll get in the playoffs and, you know, I'll fizzle out or an injury or what have you. I've actually been to our championship the most times, but I have an 0-4 record in the championship. Wow. the Buffalo game, Bills. The Buffalo Bills, uh, you know, no one circles the wagons like my team. But last year, things changed, Nick. And, uh, you, I mean, we talked about what my favorite experience was in fantasy ever. It was last year. Because I last year was not a year that I deserved playoffs. I was seventh in the league in total points. I went into week 13, final week of the regular season. And my bench – or my team was done. And I was up by, like, seven. And I was playing against Tyler Lockett. And that's it. And Tyler, as you, as you know, listeners know, he had a great first half of the season, something like wide receiver nine on the year. Second half, he ran into that leg injury, had some weird games up and down. This was a Monday night football game against the Vikings, which if you were involved oh, in that game. that's the shutout game, isn't it? You know Lockett put a goose egg up. Yeah. And there was like, he had two bomb targets, uh, and Wilson overthrew him, or, or Lockett missed a step. So there was two hold-your-breath moments. But otherwise, that owner and I literally watched Tyler Lockett goose egg put me in the playoffs. And then, Nick, I had the king, Jameis Winston, on my team. Uh, and, and I rode what was a wave of molten lava of points because he put up a 50-point week against the Colts. And then he did a 45-point week or a 44-point week the next week. And then I actually stacked him uh, with, what's his name, Justin Watson uh, in the championship week. I thought so, you were going to say Brashad Perryman there because a lot of people rode the Winston to Perryman combo with like weeks 15 through 17 after Evans and Godwin both got hurt. Well, that's good players did that, Nick. And he was obviously picked up in my league. So in mine, I took the less attractive stack, which is the Winston and Justin Watson. It may never have been done in the history of fantasy football. It may never be done again. But in that week, he threw a touchdown to him in week 16. That's all you and, need. Uh, and I won, the, I won the league. So, listen, hard work pays off, I think, is what I want to tell your listeners. For those who are out there like me struggling, Jameis Winston pays off. Um, he'll never go undrafted in my league again. And I, I'm so glad to have him here in New Orleans wearing the, the black and gold and then interning for a year because he'll be back uh, as one of the best fantasy quarterbacks. But I won last year, Nick. I'm riding high. Um, and, you know, now that I look back on it, I'm just thankful for the, the experiences where I fell short because it just made it even sweeter and made this victory even more deserved. I think that the mark of a good fantasy manager actually is making the playoffs consistently. Um, the teams that consistently give themselves the best chance to win, that is really what matters. Weeks 15, 16, however your league does playoffs, the variance is just so high, especially if it's a single elimination style 
that, you know, a lot of it's just luck in the playoffs, right? It's just dumb luck. You don't have to have the best team to win if you're in a single elimination style. But uh, getting there, eventually you're going to get over the top. And it's good to hear that you did last season. But, yeah, I pride myself getting on the, in the playoffs like every year, at least scoring the highest in points. So I know I had a good team. I know that you advise uh, fighting against the, you know, the randomness um, or the variance of a regular season by installing both the head-to-head matchups as well as the total points, right? So that way you get a possible two wins on a given week. And I don't know if you still do that, but I'm wondering if you carry that over to the playoffs or if you do think the playoffs are a place where variance belongs. Um, you know, some leagues do the two-week matchups in the playoffs. Some do head-to-head yeah. and still total points. Do you see playoffs as a place that truly needs to be random? Uh, no, I don't. I actually, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to repeat myself. There. I did a whole pretty much podcast on fantasy playoffs. I have my own system. The double matchups you're referring to, we do that in one of my more competitive money leagues where you described it well, where you get a win or loss for your head to head matchup and a win loss. If you scored in the top half that week. So there's basically, we have, 28 games in a regular season rather than 14. I only do that in money leagues and the other leagues I commission that are, that are still competitive, but not money leagues. There's like two leagues like that, that I commission. Uh, We don't do that. Um, It's just up to the league. I mean, I prefer it. Um, But in terms of playoffs, we do what I call the Garisco playoff format. And that is where it's a system I developed like 10 years ago, where everybody plays everybody once you get in the playoffs. So there's four teams in the playoffs you play every team every week. So if you are the highest score that week in like week 15, let's say you go three and zero, And if you're the lowest score in week 16 out of the three other playoff teams, you go zero and three. So in, mm. in, et cetera, and you, we do it weeks 15 through week 17. I know week 17 is controversial, but that kind of mit- that system actually kind of mitigates the importance of week 17 because you have a nine game mini sample at the end of the playoffs, rather than just playing one game, we never have any complaints in my league about whether the playoffs were unfair, a team's got lucky because you had nine games to prove yourself. And another thing I like about that system is that um, it allows you to actually incorporate five teams in the playoffs, which is big for 12 team leagues where a lot of people just say, Oh, four teams isn't enough, but six teams, half the league, that's way too many. And with this system, the Gariska playoff format, you can put in five teams, which I do out of 12, um, and you can just do the same system. It doesn't, there's no bracket, you know what I'm saying? So in what you're referring to, the other point system is that let's say somebody comes out with the same record. Like let's say two teams are six and three after week 17. They do weeks 15 through 17, and they end up, when they play everybody, they end up being six and three total. Uh, if that happens, the tiebreaker will go, the home field advantage will go to the player, the team that had the most points in the regular season plus playoffs. So we just give it to the best team. So yeah, that's how that works. But I want to move on because I've already done a whole podcast on that. I think it's called, um, I honestly think I labeled it like best playoff system or something like that. And you can go check that out if you're interested in incorporating that. It might be a little too late, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, Let's talk about week one. Wait, I mean, what was the most surprising thing to you that happened in week one? Well, I think in the real football sense, uh, you know, yeah. honestly, you know, I'm from Nashville and a Titans fan. Uh, it's wild to watch that Monday night game and see a professional kicker miss three field goals and an extra point, still get a chance to win it and hit it, right? From a real football sense, I think there's a lot to be said of that coaching angle. And I'm not saying I agree with it, or I'm saying that it's the right move. I think what Brable did there was very hard. 
to march down the field at the end of the game and put the ball in the feet, if you will, of Steven Guskowski. I don't think he would have done it had he not coached Guskowski before. Like, if this right. was a and random kicker. Like with the of him even. Um, it's, yeah. I agree with you. He, he, he had a little bit of extra um, Patriots relationship in that standing. Right. But it's, it's wild to see that, and it's wild for me, right? You know, you see the stats where it's like since 1975, only two teams uh, – or, I'm sorry, only eight teams have won in the first two weeks of the NFL season in Denver. Um, it shows right. you that the altitude advantage is real. Denver's obviously played a lot of good football for a long time. I don't know if they're great this year. But from a real football sense, it was wild to see that play out because the Titans, I think, are much better than we played that night. And it's weird to see the, the field goal piece come alive there. Um, but in a fantasy sense, um, I, I think it was interesting. You know, I, I've read some advanced stats about expected points and whatnot. Rookie running backs took over. And I think uh, in a year when, you know, a lot of people downplayed rookies and said that this would be a year without training camp, without preseason games, you know, guys are going to start slower. They're not going to have the opportunities. They're, you know, we ought to be betting on older guys like a Marlon Mack or a Carrion Johnson, right? Somebody, you know, in, that has – uh, the pedigree that has the relationship with quarterbacks and whatnot. And you come out and you see Clyde Edwards Hilaire, right. As perhaps a top three fantasy running back established after the year, but not just him, you see Joshua Kelly getting good touches in the red zone and working in tandem and playing the Melvin Gordon role to Eckler. You see um, Antonio Gibson getting, you know, 10 plus carries in week one. Did I want more for him as an owner? Absolutely. But Peyton Barber is still a, a vulture of the goal line. You see Zach Moss, getting 50% of the carries with Singletary and all of the green zone touches, right, and red zone attempts. So, to me, Nick, I think I was shocked just to see fantasy uh, running backs from a rookie standpoint having opportunities, right? Not all of them capitalized, but it seemed like a lot of them were involved. Um, I don't know if you think I'm overstating that or if you, you thought the same for some of those. No, I definitely think that that was – I never really even thought about it, honestly. So it's definitely a good take, and you gave a lot of good reasons for it. I never really even considered it. And on the other end, we also saw some wide receivers come in. Uh, CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy played big roles for their offense. Both of them looked good. Henry Ruggs also looked like – and they were drafted high. But, but I think Brandon Ayuk and Jalen Rager would have played even bigger roles had they been healthy, right? And the only yep. receiver that was really had first-round pedigree that did not – play much that we the only receiver that played like we expected to play like in a COVID shortened off season where they just couldn't get the um, couldn't get all the intricacies down and everything was Justin Jefferson right because he mm -hmm. just hasn't earned a starting role yet and a lot of that was because he missed a lot of training camp with COVID or he was on that list I guess but yeah I mean I, it's a great point I didn't even really consider the rookie running backs playing and I remember back in 2012 uh, I was reading some studies up on it this going into the season. One of the counters of that kind of narrative of fading new players on new teams, which by the way, DeAndre Hopkins, that's another example, but okay. uh, that, that's something I really got wrong. But, but one of the narratives of fading against that was that in 2012, when they had the lockout year, rookie numbers were actually up despite the missing the vast majority of the off season there. So that's just an interesting play. We'll see how it keeps on working out there. I feel bad for DeAndre Swift, man, uh, dropping that touchdown. He had it. That's, yeah. you know, I think he'll continue to get opportunities and that offense will change when Galladay gets back. But, oh, man, that was yeah. – What a nightmare for him. I, I just felt terrible watching it. 
Uh, and that was probably my biggest surprise of the week was in that game, not DeAndre Swift dropping the ball, but uh, although that was quite surprising considering college, I guess, but uh, Mitch Trubisky in that game, right? Like that was, I know the circumstances kind of played out favorably for him. I know that the Lions lost two cornerbacks in the four, early fourth quarter of that game and Mitch Trubisky had done nothing. The game had gone exactly as expected to that point. And then once they lost two cornerbacks, they were already missing Jeff Okuda. He was out for that game. Their number two cornerback, Desmond Trufant, and their nickel cornerback, Justin Coleman, both hurt early in the fourth quarter. And all of a sudden, Mr. Bates like, oh, well, Detroit really has no corners. So all of a sudden, I'm going to start playing well. And just leads them to a total comeback. And then the other surprise I have, although I will say, I want to keep it individual here, but I will say the game that surprised me the most, the, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but the, Rams and Cowboys game I thought was going to be a lot more high scoring both teams were able to lean on their running game which isn't a surprise for Dallas I was surprised the Rams were able to do it I did not think they were going to have the O-line or the running back capability to do that and I didn't think their defense would allow them to do that and their defense was pretty stout that week and Dak just did not show up they had more protection issues than I thought going in with them starting uh, Steele, the undrafted free agent ahead of Lyle Collins. It was just a really poor showing for Dallas. Uh, what, what's your take on that game? You think that's something that will continue? Well, look, the Malcolm Brown sweepstakes happened across America this week on the waiver wire. Because How much he, did he go uh, for in your league? It, well, in our league, we do the waiver priority. So he okay. was number one claim. But I saw fab spins, you know, yep. across Twitter and whatnot of like 80, 90 bucks in a 100 fab league. Wow. Like, people that's were more than drinking. I saw. In my, yeah. in my league, he, we do 150 bucks all fab. And it was, he, I think he went for probably on average, probably about 70. So probably half the budget almost. Uh, but I didn't see any higher than 78. So my leagues are a little more timid with it. I mean, that's a lot of money to spend your fab money. But yeah, I've seen in leagues where he's gone for a hundred percent, which is pretty crazy. People are drinking the Kool-Aid and acting because look, the guy had the look, you know, we all watched the game. He, he was hitting holes strong. He yeah. clearly looked like a different level of running back, you know, even than acres, certainly than Henderson. Uh, and then you throw in the coach speak, right. And all of a sudden the Rams are talking about how, Hey, well, it's a hot hand, but Malcolm Lewis looked good. And we're going to keep giving the ball and keep giving opportunities. You know, I, I think people are just saying this team's going to be good. And if this guy's going to get, even 60% of that workload and perhaps yeah. the goal line, surely this is a home run hit in terms of a first week of some backfield that we underutilized or underestimated. I, I personally don't believe in Malcolm, uh, you know, as much as the world. And I'm sure everybody would have a grain of salt with it, but I, I think Cam Akers becomes more and more involved. He's more diverse, right. Uh, than what Malcolm can bring to you. And, yeah. and the investment. The correct. Investment. I the totally investment. agree with you. I totally agree with you. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the investment as well. The Rams spent a second round pick on Cam Akers. I believe it was actually their first pick in the draft because they didn't have a first rounder because they trade that sure. every year. But uh, Cam Akers definitely invested there. And I also think another issue with this is that Daryl Henderson was questionable going into the game. It's possible they were limiting his role. I'm not saying we should go pick him up in fantasy because a lot of teams probably cut him. But I am saying that that could – steal a little more touches. I think this is going to be a running back by committee, and I wasn't chomping at the bit to get Malcolm Brown. I'm shocked if Daryl really fades like people are acting like he is right now. I mean, you know, as somebody from Tennessee and what have you, Daryl's a beast at Memphis, and I think people know that. And, you know, the Tony Pollards, the Antonio Gibsons, like Memphis puts out running backs, and it just feels like we haven't seen Daryl's 
definitely not his – I don't think we've seen his best career game in the NFL. Yeah, um, no, definitely not. Played in, so I'm hoping he picks that up. Uh, yeah, and then the other surprise that I had was in another individual performance, Aaron Rodgers, right? Because Aaron Rodgers, you know, we talked at length about Aaron Rodgers, like on the side here. And Rodgers was always kind of a guy, I just, I didn't have a strong stance on Rodgers, but I always was okay with the argument. And we've talked exactly about this. So I'm sorry for repeating to you, but for listeners out there, my stance on Rodgers was that I could definitely see the argument that a lot of, a lot of casual players were actually on Aaron Rodgers this year. And a lot of experts were off him. And that was one of the scenarios where it looks like the casual players are right. Cause they were just assuming hey, this is still Aaron Rodgers. Like, I know it's a run-committed offense with Matt LaFleur, but, you know, Aaron Rodgers, this is still him, and a lot of casual players were on him. And I could see the argument that, hey, you know, maybe he's being disrespected in the fantasy football community. Maybe he's motivated. I definitely saw this argument because I know how – I don't want to say petty Aaron Rodgers is, but I know how kind of emotional he can get and standoffish. And I knew once they drafted uh, Jor- Jordan Love, one of my first instincts was actually – Aaron Rodgers is going to have a great year this year. And that was on him. And I didn't follow through with it. I wish I would have. And, but I ranked like Stafford and Breeze ahead of Rodgers. But I, you know, I kind of heard the arguments on both sides. I was, I was open to it. He was my quarterback 13, which is right around consensus. And, but a lot of experts were really off on Rodgers. And even the experts I really trust and respect had him at like quarterback 16, even quarterback 17 saying, oh yeah, his days as a fantasy, you know, elite fantasy quarterback are over because it's so run committed. Look, Wait, I realized that the Vikings were, you know, they changed all three of their cornerbacks. They lost them all to free agency. I realized that Daniil Hunter was on short-term IR. He's missing the game. And in my matchup preview pod, I said all that. But it still just didn't register to me Register to me that Aaron Rodgers was a good play. Like I said all that in my matchup preview. And then I said, well, this should be a low-scoring game, right? Yeah, Aaron Rodgers didn't have good success against the Vikings last year. So, you know, good matchup for Aaron Jones. I don't know if I would start Rodgers. And then all of a sudden, you know, dominant. He goes scorched earth, right? I'm laughing because in my league, we had a guy draft him um, and, and call it the 10th or the 11th round. Took him over guys like Breeze, like Stafford, even Josh Allen in our league, which we can talk about that another time. But um, we, as a league, we ridiculed him. We put him down and said, listen, that's a terrible pick. What a scrub pick to take Rodgers. You think he's Rodgers from 2012 or 2013 right now? He ended up dropping Rodgers and played Roethlisberger, who wow. was fine. But he lost okay, his but and now he's just picked up Rodgers for week two and cursing the league because, of course, he thinks he's made the best quarterback selection. I, I think you're right from a conspiracy standpoint that maybe the best thing the Packers could have done was draft Jordan Love just to light the fire under Rodgers and get another right. Super Bowl season. And pass on those receivers as well. Well, What's I've seen the take where it's like, hey, the Packers came out in the draft and they selected these uh, new pieces for their offense, right? And then they gave them seven touches in week one. And look at Rodgers' performance. Imagine if they had spent it on somebody who really could have helped him or heightened his game in weeks one or two. Yeah. Missed opportunities, but Rodgers did look great. And Rodgers came out after the draft and said that he was looking at receivers like – or he expected them to take a receiver. Like he mentioned Jeff, Justin Jefferson and, and Brandon Ayuk by name. Uh, and Justin Jefferson was a guy that I really – like I'm, you know, I'm big on mocking the draft, but I did not think Justin Jefferson was going to make it to the Packers. Um, but had, 
had Jefferson Jefferson been on the board for Green Bay and like had I known that going in, I would have just been like, oh, that's a slam dunk pick. They're automatically going to do it. But it looks like they Jordan Love was their guy and they're not going to pass up on a quarterback they like. So I don't know, pretty crazy out of there. But yeah, Wade, what was uh, what are some of the things that you were kind of surprised in a negative way? Like some things that you look like you may have gotten wrong this season and, and don't feel bad. I'm going to I'm going to tell you mine after. This won't be all a bash fest on you. Yeah. Well, listen, I get a lot wrong every year. Here's what I did in my league that's throwing me to the moon, right? I did the anchor running back strategy, like you know. So I had first yeah. pick. I got McCaffrey on my squad. That's not wrong. That, he looks fun. If yeah. they had given him the ball in fourth and one instead of the fullback, they might still be playing in triple overtime right now, and he'd have 1,000 yards. Uh, but what I did, you know, I, I followed the anchor running back strategy by taking Mahomes and Kelsey stack right, at the 2-3 turn when it came back to me, which I was excited about. You know, you, yeah. you play McCaffrey, Kelsey, and Mahomes every week and come what may. Yeah, on the rest a great of the start. Roster. But Mahomes comes out and is QB 14. He has the third lowest yard total of his entire career. And as everybody saw, they're just trying to give CEH the ball anytime they get across the 50. They gave him 10 carries inside the 15-yard line. And as we all know, he got stuffed on all of them he broke a 20 yard run right to score his only touchdown and look ceh still looked good but what i was wrong about and what i i'm so scared about watching the chiefs chargers game this year is it looks like ceh might change the complexion of this offense and two it also might be that the chiefs are just so much better than everybody else that they're going to get out to these comfortable leads and mahomes is not going to have to dice people up for 400 500 yards so yeah well, keep I don't in mind, I'm yet, but I'm worried. <laughs> yeah, keep in mind. No, it's a, it's a fair point to be worried for sure because the Chiefs have not had a running back like the Fresh Prince um, since Mahomes has really been a quarterback, I would say. And the, the issue there is, yeah, they could be way more balanced. The Chiefs also, n- not only did they give him a lot of carries, that caused them to play at a very slow pace. They were the eighth slowest pace this year and there's historically with Mahomes been you know top 10 for sure so they were yeah they were a conservative team part of me thinks that it was just because it was the Texans and they were it's a winnable game and I just think they just kind of toyed with them and they didn't need to the reason that I'm not too concerned with Mahomes is because other than the fact that he's Pat Mahomes but the reason <laughs> I'm not too concerned is because we had the dropped touchdown in the first quarter Demarcus Robinson and that was a 40-yard perfect pass by Mahomes and then we also I believe Demarcus Robinson dropped another pass. It was a short variety in the third quarter. Uh, and so those are two touchdowns. He could have had a five-touchdown game. So then we wouldn't even be talking about this. But, yeah, no, I do think that Edwards, Hilaire, he's definitely going to take some of the ceiling out of Mahomes, which is kind of ironic because they – you know, that was one of my – another surprises that they brought Edwards, Hilaire in to be more of a receiving back – and it was just total the opposite. Like Darrell Williams was playing on passing downs. Edward Zilaire was playing on rushing downs. And I am attributing that to COVID, honestly. I'm contributing that to the shortened offseason. I don't think he had the intricacies or enough to learn pass protection and everything like that. And then the other one, you already touched on it, but I'll give you a, a T if you want to talk about it again. But Hopkins apparently is Hopkins in uh, Houston times 1.5. Yeah. He looked incredible with Kyler, did he not? I'm, I'm already taking a massive L on that, Wade. I, I, in my prior, I think it was two podcasts ago, my recap of that game was just like, I just feel so defeated having watched DeAndre Hopkins like – 
you know, on paper, it was like the perfect scenario. You get out of old school Bill O'Brien and who's just kind of got like an archaic offense. Then you go to like, you know, the new age Cliff Kingsbury kind of pepper the receivers with targets, Kyler Murray, fun quarterback. And I thought that, you know, there's just no way he's going to get the volume that he got in Houston. He averaged 160 targets a season uh, for the last five years in a row. And I was like, there's just no way that's going to happen in year one, right? Like I could see it for year two. Shortened off season, it just, receivers tend to decline when they change teams. Didn't matter. None of that mattered. It was, it just makes me look like a fool. And that was one of my biggest misses. The other one, of course, being, and I'm not like 100%, I, I can readily like wave up the white flag on DeAndre Hopkins. This one, I'm close to waving up the white flag. And that is uh, James Conner, of course. Ooh. That was just a brutal, brutal opening there. And, you know, I, Obviously understood that he was a mass, probably the biggest injury risk in fantasy football. I was willing to take that chance in round three of drafts because I thought it was like a 40% chance that he was going to be a total bust because he would get hurt. And then I thought there was a 60% chance that he was going to hit like, and not just hit, like hit in a big way, like be a top 10 running back that you were getting in the third round. Now, you know, now that he's tweaked his ankle in week one and Mike Tomlin who devoted the offseason to really propping up this guy and saying, you know, he's going to be our bell cow. You know, we trust him to stay healthy. It's his contract year. And James Conner, you know, put in the work this offseason. And then Tomlin's reaction after he goes down, like, are you know, are you serious? Like, is this really going to happen? Combine that with Benny Snell's performance. Now, if I would have said there's like a 40% chance of James Conner busting, you know, purely really based on injury. Now I'm going to say it's like 80%. Yeah. I, there's 20% of me that hopes that Connor will be motivated by this and just kind of come out there and just take his job back. And part of me thinks, you know, it was the Giants defense, maybe Benny Snell. I know he worked really hard in the offseason as well to cut down. Part of me thinks, you know, maybe Benny Snell's not as good as Connor, but I don't know, man. It looked rough there. And I think there's probably about an 80% chance that James Connor busts. So I'm not willing to take the L yet, but this is pretty devastating. I was seeing uh, there was a big talk out there, I think, last week. It was like the stars are aligning for Le'Veon Bell to return to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Wow, that's so true. Adam Gase just hates <laughs> Le'Veon Bell. Yeah, I think like, he does. That was definitely one thing I got right. Like, just oh. I had Le'Veon Bell as like an eighth-round pick. I just could not fathom his third-round ADP. And, uh, yeah, what, wait, really quickly, what are some of the things that you got uh, right? That's some, some things that you just kind of been confirmed for you. Well, uh, on my team, I went with no true wide receiver one this year, uh, right? So I ended up with a mixture of guys who I think I got right, just in terms of guys who can be wide receiver ones in the right scenarios or who you can play matchups with. So just to call out a few names, and this is me, this is you, this is experts that I listen to. But Calvin Ridley obviously has a great start to his Chris Godwin-esque hype. And look, I know, if you're listening to this, you're going to tell me that, hey, the, the Falcons had to go down 12 to – 21 or 12 to 30 whatever it was before Matt Ryan just unleashed the cannon but let's all still acknowledge the fact that he unleashed it to Ridley and Ridley got two touchdowns over 100 yards and let's say this it's not gonna be the last time the Falcons are down in a game in the fourth quarter that's uh, my they, that's my biggest point to that that was part of the reason that we like the Falcons right like, or at least for me that garbage time that happened last year it's gonna happen this year they didn't make any improvements on defense other than drafting a cornerback and that, I mean, the Falcons play in a dome. They still have Matt Ryan. This is all the reasons that Calvin Ridley boomed in week one 
were the reasons that, you know, I drafted him. They're the reasons that I was high on him. There's reasons that I saw him as a top 12 receiver. So yeah, it's not going to continue like this. And I don't think he's going to put up Chris Godwin numbers from last year, even if it does, but no, it's a great point to make. And I, I just think it's not necessarily par for the course, but that's a factor. It will be like this for a lot of games. And then two other guys who I think, you know, if, if depending on who you talk to, a lot of arguing about these guys in the offseason based on height, based on size, also based on injury history. You already know I'm going to Marquise Brown and Will Fuller. Both yeah. those guys showed up in week one. I, I think they're both poised as watching, you know, re-watching some of their games, some of their highlights. They're both key points of their offense. They're no longer just deep threat bombs. They're getting routes all over the field. They're getting targets. They're the first look for Watson and Lamar, respectively. Well, Mark Andrews might be, so I know you're waving yeah. the, the victory there. But, but two great quarterbacks. Two yeah, two great quarterbacks. Yeah, I think that week one – and actually went – and I'm not trying to just say, like, it was just, you know, everything I predicted was right. Because, obviously, I just mentioned things that were just totally wrong. But week one <laughs> went pretty well for, for me, honestly. Like, it just it, – you know, just Josh Jacobs smashing, Mark Andrews, yeah. David Johnson looking healthy, Jonathan Taylor. Uh, I only have him on one team, but I wish I had him on all my teams, of course. Yep. And I couldn't have predicted the Marlon Mack injury, but I had him 10 spots higher than ADP. Will Fuller, Hollywood Brown, you mentioned Adam Thielen, Josh Allen, Matt Ryan, Russ Wilson, Robert Woods. These are all guys that I just have on so many of my teams. And you mentioned waiting on receivers. And that was a big part. Of, that was a big theme of my draft guide. And guys that I faded that were just very controversial, like Allen Robinson, DJ Moore, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Kenny Galladay, Cortland Sutton. I know they were hurt. They didn't play. But it's – but it looks like fading those guys, you know, that that's why I faded them. And I, I realized, look, this isn't, you know, a total boast fest. I realized things change really quickly. It's only week one. We have a long season ahead of us, but giving, you know, it's fair to be excited about things and just not take the victory lap. Like I feel like I've given myself a chance or my readers a chance to hit on a lot of these players and to fade on someone who may underwhelm, um, but yeah, not the time to take victory laps, but okay to be excited. Uh, we can't just assume week one is indicative of the whole season. Um, Wade, quick hits before you go. Uh, is your favorite fantasy memory Jameis Winston? Has to be. Jameis Winston to the moon, my king forever. Yeah. Uh, what is your greatest fantasy hit ever? Like a guy that you drafted in like every league, maybe late, that ended up being a dominant player. Well, look, you've heard my history, right? So I haven't had any to-the-moon hits because I haven't been a champion. But what I am proud of, 2016, and it might have been 2017, will correct me on the year later, but I took uh, DeMarco Murray when he was the first year as a Titan, and that was – everybody was off him. I was I think, off Murray that year. I remember you specifically. Like, I talked to you before the draft. I was like, listen, man, I think he's going to get the ball. I think Derrick Henry's not a thing yet. We want to run. That's all we can do. And you advised, you're like, Wade – too much two-tone blue in your sunglasses right now, right? The Titans are going to be bad. They're not going to have positive game scripts. DeMarco right. is washed. He, gave up, he got 1,000 carries in Dallas. Don't, don't touch him. Even still, my heart won, right? The heart wins over the head sometimes, Nick. Yeah, I got yeah, DeMarco got Murray in the fifth round everywhere, and he ended up being a top-10 running back perennially that year. Um, and I ended up – that was one of the years I was in the championship and lost. But getting DeMarco after – I think I started that year with, like, Odell and McCoy when he was a Bill – so it's like DeMarco was such a great – he was maybe one of the biggest hits in the fifth, yeah. sixth round. No, that was he a loves, huge – You love to hit on your own team. So that's yeah, that was, It's fun to watch, too. That was a huge hit. 
And I actually, I did the same strategy for DeMarco when he changed teams. I hated him going into Tennessee and I hated him going, not hate him, but, you know, not drafted him going into Philly. I hated him going to Philly too, because everyone was picking him in like round two when he went to yep. the Eagles. I was like, no, I got one wrong, got one right there because he was just a total bust in Philly. Uh, what's your biggest whiff ever? Uh, there's many. Um, I think trades are what my league would tell you, right? So I'm infamous for trading Julio Jones to get Arian Foster, perhaps because of our Texans days. And because I knew the man, I knew he ate vegan, I knew what he did in and out, and I believed in him. But I traded for Dolphins Arian Foster, to be clear. Julio Jones for Dolphins Arian Foster. Arian tore his ACL three weeks later. Biggest whiff I've had. I've also traded Antonio Brown for Monty Ball. And oh. to be fair, this, this was Antonio's first year, you know, when he went on his rip of like yeah. five years. I drafted him because of you, got him on my team. He ripped week one. And then I was like, but I want Monty Ball because this guy's playing in the Denver office that scores a ton of points and he's exactly. legit. And we all know how that turned out. So yeah, those two whiffs, but my, in drafting, I took CJ Spiller second overall that year. That, that year after the breakout year. Yeah. A lot of people missed on CJ Spiller and, Monty Ball, what's one league setting or rule that you've heard or seen about that you want incorporated in all your leagues? Well, I think the one I'm most proud of in our league is we do a summit weekend, right? Which I know some people do variances of this. I'm referring to a live draft, but more importantly, we pick a weekend to travel to a city, all oh, 10 of awesome. us together. And we have, you know, a whole string of affairs. So we do a summit dinner on Friday night. That's where, you know, the winner and the commissioner, we give a little speech or a little toast. Wow. We have rule changes that people have proposed. So there's an agenda, you know, like we're a board of directors and we work through them and we vote on them and we talk about the pros and cons. Um, this a is lot incredible of times, content um, here. The next day we'll do an activity in that city. So like this year it was in uh, NOLA. We were supposed to go fishing. Uh, Hurricane Laura had other plans oh, and messed man. that up. But we were, you know, we had a red fishing trip planned in Denver. We went to a Rockies game um, in Atlanta. We did a top golf thing. So it's, you know, do an event in the city, do a live draft, soak it in for three, four hours with the sticker board, and then uh, hang out the rest of the weekend. And to me, that's, that's just something special. You can't do that in every league you're in, right? But, I, you know, I, I would advise people, especially in home leagues or in leagues they grew up with the guys, make the effort for that. And maybe the unique part of it I'll share, too, is, one, we have the winner choose the location. So it's always fun to have them either host people in their city or choose somewhere they want to go. The winner gets all their expenses paid. That's a big payout for winning our league, right? So your flight, your hotel, everything you wow. do in that city, the league splits it. And then we also take a pool, you know, for our buy-in every year. Um, our buy-in's 100 bucks, And right now, all 100 of that dollars goes into a community pool for the summit. So if you, wow. if you hear me, we don't pay out our winner. We pay them out by their summit expenses. It's but a vacation, building, We're building a fund that the league can vote on and ratify a use for that fund with a seven tenths vote. And we're going to use it on a summit in the future. So we'll buy an Island or something um, or a, a giant yacht and just hang out. But the idea is that we're going to build this over time. We have our CFO who manages it, puts it in small market funds. Um, and we have a lot of fun with it. So summit weekend is, I just wanted to share that. I think that's something all of our league enjoys and makes it unique. Yeah. That is incredible content right there. That's awesome. Uh, uh, who's your favorite expert? Um, so I've become a big Evan Silva and Adam Levitan guy. Oh yeah, um, me too. Establish the run. You know, if, if folks don't know about it, I think that's a site that I, um, I really follow. I like the podcast they do. I like the stuff they put out and I like, uh, the expertise they bring, right. Uh, Evan obviously is the original 150 in terms of a top 150. He's a trusted mind in the season long formats and in the high state games. Adam, I, I really enjoy his content on DFS, uh, a place that I traditionally haven't 
you know, played a lot in and just hearing his kind of sharp takes on setting lineups and projecting what salaries are going to be. I, I really enjoy what those two guys put out. So that's who I would say. Uh, yeah, love those guys. Definitely for sure at ETR. It is premium content. You do, do have to pay for it. But Adam, just very great high stakes guy. Evan, uh, widely considered one of the goats of fantasy football. Uh, last, last question, Wade. Uh, what is one, what's your favorite bit of fantasy advice you've ever received and, or advice you would tell beginners? Um, for me, I think something that defines my draft every year um, and I've heard you talk about this. I've heard Evan and Adam talk about this and others, but it's like, I don't look at injury history. Um, and for my guys, it's like, if, if, if a guy's injured and we're, let's talk Will Fuller, cause that's who it applies to this year. If Will Fuller uh, is not injured all year, I, I have a hard time believing he's outside of the wide receiver top 15. He might be a top 10 receiver. And I think he would have been a top three, four round pick. So in my world, you draft for what this year opportunity entails regardless of injury history. And I, I think the fantasy advice is knowing that you don't have to take zeros if Will Fuller gets hurt and can't play in week seven, eight, nine, right? You get to sub somebody else in. The point is that you're drafting a ceiling that is unavailable with other players in that round or when you get them. So I think a lot of folks shy away from injury history. This guy is in and out. James Conner is the same story. I had no problem taking Conner, no problem taking Fuller, because if they hit – there's so much more of a ceiling for them than the guys that are going around them. And I think injuries uh, to some extent are overvalued or people fear them too much. So a lot of risk in that, but I yeah. think fantasy is a game where you, like you say, right, you are only going to look at the hits at the end of your draft. And yeah. I want to put as many of those hits out there as possible. And I think that involves taking some high injury guys. Yeah. A lot of those hits come from uh, injury discounts there. It is tough to hear you say that with the James Conner lately stuff there. <laughs> However, some are hits, some are misses. Uh, that, that's good advice, though. I think injuries in general are a little overrated. And uh, I just look at how I can get really discounts there. Um, so, yeah, that's great content there. Wade, thanks so much for coming on today. I know you got to go. Uh, it's been awesome having you on. You will be back for sure. I look forward to it. Nick, thanks for having me, man. Good luck to all of your listeners. And I'm looking forward to Joe Burrow torching the Browns on Thursday Night Football tonight. I hope so. I hope so. I'll be rooting for that. All right. See, see you later. Okay. That was awesome stuff by Wade. So well-spoken and knowledgeable. I love how passionate he is about his league, how seriously they take it. Those are some great stories there. Wade did mention Joe Burrow in his outro there. So let's transition here. Let's talk about Joe Burrow and preview tonight's game. We're on to Cincinnati. It's nothing about the past, nothing about the future. It's right now we're preparing for Cincinnati. Cincinnati Bengals at Cleveland Browns. Vegas favors Cleveland by six in this game. I think the over-under point total is around 43.5. Joe Burrow struggled in week one. He had a long rushing touchdown that was very pretty. He gave his team a chance to win as well with a 70-yard drive at the end of the game. A.J. Green had a touchdown for the win that was called back, and the Bengals were set up to force Overtime with a chip shot field goal, but the kicker's calf cramped up at, before he swung or something like that. So there were some bright spots for Joe Burrow, but overall he looks pretty overwhelmed by the Chargers defensive line. He was pretty inaccurate, and he just looked like a rookie in his first start. I mean, that, that's really just what it was. There's no better explanation for it. Luckily, the Browns defense, not as good as the Los Angeles Chargers defense is, and the Browns defense got wrecked by the Baltimore Ravens, which a lot of teams do, but this was just a sorry, sorry showing by the Browns defense. 
And A.J. Green was Joe Burrow's target by far. He saw nine targets, 44% of the team's air yards. Next highest total of targets on the team is five. The Browns really only have one good cornerback. That's Denzel Ward. But Green was a ticky-tack OPI call away from a good game against the Chargers, who have great defensive backs. I think he's a borderline wide receiver two, great wide receiver three, or flex option. And the Browns are missing their number two and number three corners in this game. Greedy Williams, Kevin Johnson, both out. And they were as well in week one when Willie Sneed, the slot receiver for the Ravens, dropped a 4-61-1 receiving line on Cleveland. That's four catches, 61 yards, and a touchdown. And this sets up nicely for a rebound game for Tyler Boyd in the slot, who had a really tough draw in week one going up against Chris Harris, Casey Hayward a little bit. But he's a middling flex option or wide receiver three at best until we kind of some production or at least better usage out of Tyler Boyd. I wouldn't really feel that comfortable throwing him in. He could have a bounce back game, but if I have better options, then I just really have no problem sitting him this week. But I probably prefer that A.J. Green is in starting lineups. John Ross actually led the Bengals pass catchers in snaps played in week one. He saw five targets as well. And he's kind of a sleeper in this game because of the favorable matchup and because he's he can always get over the top of the defense and have a big play. He's a nice boomer bust flyer for very deep leagues if you're just kind of dealing with injuries already. It wouldn't be the most surprising thing in the world because of his usage and because of his snaps played if John Ross, you know, has a big play in this game. Joe Mixon was not on the field much for the final drive of the game, and that was when the game was on the line for the Bengals, and that's disappointing. It's disappointing that they're subbing him out for Gio Bernard and obvious passing downs and two-minute situations because not only has Mixon proven to be a very capable and, dare I say, very good receiver out of the backfield, but the Bengals also just signed him to a huge contract extension. So it just makes no sense that they're not going to use him as a pass catcher. Still two targets, one catch, one receiving yard last week. We have to have that get better. If Joe Mixon's going to be a top 10 running back for fantasy football, which I expected him to be before the season, on paper this is a better matchup for Mixon. But it's worth noting that the Browns' defense was excellent against the Ravens' great rushing attack in Week 1. That's the only thing that the Browns really did well was stop the run. They held Baltimore running backs at 2.86 yards a carry on 22 attempts. And Baltimore has a pretty good running game, as we know. So I'm expecting a solid but unspectacular day from Mixon. Mixon actually did tweet that he is ready. He's been anxious to get back on the field and redeem himself since Sunday. So I'm expecting kind of 75 yards and a score here needs a bounce back game in a big way. For Cleveland, I think the last 72 hours kind of represented a great buy-low opportunity for Nick Chubb, who I expect the Browns to commit to tonight. They couldn't last week because the Ravens just destroyed them. But Chubb averaged six yards a pop, and he ran well. He did lose a fumble, and he did play sparingly after that. But I don't think that that's as much changing in the guard or Chubb getting benched as it was due to game flow. The Browns were just losing by 20 for most of this game. And the Browns are favored to win tonight's game, which is a positive for Nick Chubb. And another positive is that the Bengals are missing defensive tackle Geno Atkins, one of the best defensive tackles in the game. And also Mike Daniels is supposed to be out for this game as well. And he's their other defensive tackle. So I'm starting Chubb with confidence for a rebound game here. And I'm actually not using Kareem Hunt in this one, even in the flex. I think that Hunt is just more of a backup and dependent on the Browns trailing. 
I think most fantasy teams will have better options than Kareem Hunt in the flex. Maybe I'm wrong, and Hunt does cut into Chubb's workload big time, like he did in week one. But I'm not betting on that at this point, despite what we saw in week one, which I kind of chalk up to the Ravens just beating the brakes off the Cleveland Browns. If there's any good takeaways, though, it's that the Browns running game was very efficient against Baltimore and limited opportunities. So I do think that Cleveland will have an improved running game this year if they can actually keep the scoreboard reasonable. And that was the expectation under Kevin Stefanski, who oversaw Dalvin Cook's breakout campaign last year and brings over some of those zone-blocking system concepts with an improved offensive line. So that's why I still kind of have faith in Nick Chubb. Baker Mayfield was terrible in Week 1, and this is a new system, but he looked like the same old quarterback who was just terrified of the slightest bit of pressure and tries to escape and bail out of clean pockets for just no apparent reason. And that creates big sacks. He was able to improv at Oklahoma, and he was accurate at Oklahoma, but the NFL is just too fast for him, it seems. He's not processing past his first or second reads. He doesn't trust his offensive line, and he doesn't have enough mobility at the NFL level to evade NFL defensive linemen. He's looking more and more like a bust of a draft pick each week, which is pretty sad. And what's even sadder is his total lack of connection with Odell Beckham. Beckham, same story from last year, misconnections, lack of chemistry with Mayfield. Mayfield was inaccurate. Beckham did have 10 targets and 37.5% of the team's air yards. Great receiver one usage, that is. But only four of those targets were deemed catchable. So what good is that? One was a drop, but Odell did draw three penalties, two PI calls on defenders. So it wasn't all that terrible, but but those just don't help the box score. And the Bengals look like a decent pass defense, but not great. They're missing number two cornerback Trey Waynes to a torn peck. And Beckham should be in starting lineups, but if he has another, another bad game, we're going to start having to chalk up the piss poor production to the quality of Baker Mayfield and their connection or lack thereof, as opposed to the health of Odell Beckham, which, which I thought was the main issue last season. He wasn't 100% healthy and was playing through the sports hernia issue that he had offseason surgery on. So I thought he was going to be a bargain in drafts this year. It didn't look like that was the case in week one. We just have to hope that Mayfield starts playing better because it looks like they do want to get Beckham involved. He is still a playmaker, but it just they just can't do it. For whatever reason, the connection is just not there. The odd part about that is that Jarvis Landry also, who's still not 100% from all-season hip surgery, has established a clear rapport with Baker Mayfield. Last year and in this year, it also looks reliable. Last week, five catches, 60 yards, which isn't much, but it was on six targets. So somewhat disappointing because of game flow, but the Browns were trailing all game. But Landry's, you know, this wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault that he wasn't targeted more. I view Landry as more of a reliable wide receiver three or flex, but nothing more. I think his ceiling is pretty low. If I'm deciding between Jarvis Landry and Tyler Boyd in this game, that's a really tough call, honestly, but I would lean probably towards Landry because we just haven't, we know the chemistry is there with Mayfield and Landry. We know he has produced. We haven't seen Tyler Boyd produce yet, so I'm kind of taking a wait and see approach on Tyler Boyd, even though I did like him for the season. It just might be some growing pains for the Cincinnati Bengals, seeing as this is a rookie quarterback. I think he's going to progress over the year, and that will help Joe Mixon. That will help A.J. Green. That will help Tyler Boyd. But it looked a little shaky in week one. It's just tough to attribute that to all of the Chargers defense or whether it's the shortened offseason with Joe Burrow, and he's just not quite ready to support great fantasy options yet. 
And, of course, it's not all Burrow's fault. The Bengals' offensive line is obviously trash as well. But moving on, Austin Hooper, tight end for the Browns. He only had two targets in the opener. Fellow tight end David Njoku had 50 yards and the Browns' only touchdown. He also had one of the greatest catches of the week where he caught a pass over the top, like diving over a defender. It was a crazy catch, worth looking up the highlight. Unfortunately, Njoku hurt his knee and is now on short-term IR. As a result, I said in my waiver wire pod that I'd hold Austin Hooper for one more week, and this is that week. He's more of a tight end two than a tight end one, but I'm willing to give him one more shot unless, of course, I have better options. He should get more work than rookie tight end Harrison Bryant, who will be taking over Njoku's spot for the time being. I'm not using either kicker in this game because they aren't good and because Vegas projects this to be a pretty low-scoring game. I actually do like the over on the 43, but not enough to use kickers in this game. I don't mind using the Browns or Bengals defenses, to be honest, but I don't love it either. Mayfield usually invites sacks and turnovers with his reckless playing style and inaccuracy, but my fear is that the Browns will be able to control this game with their running game. And on the other side, my fear is that Joe Burrow actually isn't as bad as he was and won't be as rattled as he was in his first NFL start. And the Browns defense isn't nearly as good as the Los Angeles Chargers. And I honestly don't know which defense I'd prefer in this game. If choosing the Browns or Bengals, I'd probably lean towards the Browns, but I'm just not so sure about that. So that's one reason I am avoiding the defenses slash special team here in this game. Okay, we're going to end the show with a fantasy nugget of the day. Haven't done one in a while. I'm bringing it back, and I think it'll be here to stay. I like ending the show with a thought-provoking stat. No opinions, no context. The takeaway is just left up to you. And today's fantasy nugget of the day comes from Rich Rebar at Lord Reeves on Twitter. The Panthers have allowed three or more touchdowns in 13 consecutive games dating back to last season. That is the longest streak for a franchise since the 1963 Denver Broncos. Panthers, three or more touchdowns allowed in 13 straight games. Longest streak since 1963. And they've actually allowed four or more touchdowns in five straight games. And that is the longest streak since 2016 Browns. And they did that. I believe that was the 0-16 team. They did that for seven straight games. So yeah, Carolina Panthers allowed four touchdowns in five straight games, allowed at least three touchdowns in 13 straight games. Their week two opponent this week, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. All right, that'll conclude today's episode. Huge, huge thank you to my guest, Wade Longmire. He will definitely be back on future episodes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do me a solid. Hit the subscribe button. Give a positive rating or review. I would really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See you.